In our culture, we learn through stories. But what if the stories we hear don't match the reality of life? What if the stories we hear every day that tell us how to write the narrative of our lives actually lead us to a false narrative? My name is Tim Kroll, and on this podcast, you will hear real stories. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Real people sharing the hard times, the bends in the roads along life's journey. If you're ready to join a community of other real people who are writing the narrative of their lives, then go to narrative.live and join the community. Now let's dive into today's show. Welcome back uh, once again. Man, I feel like I say this every time, but I get so excited to hear people's stories and I, I really, truly enjoy this. And so today we have Dr. Sarah with us. Uh, we met in Colorado, of all places, we shared tacos together. So <laughs> we ate at a taco joint and um, we had a lot of fun just learning about each other, learning who each other's was, and then just really kind of resonating. And then to follow up, we found out we're both from Michigan, had a lot of the same interest. There's just a lot of things I could say, but let me do this, Sarah. If somebody met you for the first time and you guys are riding up the elevator in 30 seconds, can you give me a, an elevator pitch of who you are? Not necessarily what you do, but who you are. So my name is Sarah Whedon. I am a doctor. I am a daughter. And I am someone who's very passionate about taking what I've learned and sharing it with the world. And I just know that we're all called to do something big in this world. And that's not necessarily monetary. And figuring that out is the biggest gift we can give to the planet. That's possibly the best intro that I've heard in quite some time. So that's really, I mean, like, that's truly, you know, your identity. And I love that about you is the fact that you really know who you are and how you were created. And that's really the the core of this entire narrative podcast that we're running through. So let's go ahead and jump into the details, right? The background. What was Sarah like growing up and how did your beliefs, what were some of the, the, we'll call them the false narratives that you were led to believe, whether you were told them or society said that this is, you got to grow up and go to college or you watch as an example and you adapted that as this is the way, what, what were those things like? Let's go back to that time. So it wasn't until probably about 10 years ago as a full-fledged adult, we'll talk about this in, later on the podcast, where I really had to start addressing some of these things. But I have to start off by saying nothing overtly bad happened to me when I was a child. I had a wonderful childhood. We traveled, you know, I had a really committed, hardworking dad. My mom stayed home with us for a majority of my childhood, very loving environment. You know, I think one of the misnomers about the world that we live in right now is something overly tragic happened, had to have happened to you when you were a child in order to have things that you need Mm -hmm. to learn and figure out as an adult, reframe things. So I just wanted to clear that up that I had a wonderful everything growing up, probably so much so that. I never really had to start problem solving at an early age. Uh, You know, there's a lot of things that in raising my own children, I will probably reconsider, like giving them opportunities to fail at things gracefully and navigate or learn how to crack an egg and not get upset that they spilled or that, you know, the egg broke or something like that. I think one of the things that I struggled with as I got older, especially with some of the things that came down the pipeline was how do I navigate a situation that I have to adapt to and I don't know how to do that without falling apart, Mm -hmm. without panicking, without completely freezing and shutting down. Because things were just that straightforward and easy for me. You know, I turned 16. I had a car that I could use. You know, I went to private school and, you know, I had to apply and I got good grades. But I also had to learn that I had inflicted a lot of undue perfectionism into my own world 
again, my parents didn't bribe me unnecessarily with grades. They didn't say you have to be a straight A student to be a great person. You know, they provide just as much love to me as I would expect any great parent to. But I had managed to self-inflict a whole bunch of perfectionists. And I had decided what that looked like. There was no room for error. You know, everybody had to see me as someone who had things together someone who, you know, didn't have any missteps and just knew where they were going. And what I started to figure out, you know, as I started to become a teenager was this was not a way of life, but I didn't know how to get out of it. Right. So I'd be getting up in the Let's dig into that a little bit because that perfectionism is something that uh, I've seen in actually my own kids. There's sometimes, especially I have one child that's very perfectionistic to the point of almost an OCD. But I, I know that there's a lot of people that deal with that kind of an idea where did you get that from? Was that something that was modeled? Was it something that you had uh, somebody you looked up to? Was it, where, where did that come from? Why did you feel you had to be perfect? Well, because probably foundationally, I believe that I wasn't enough, that I had to prove to other people that I had value. And it took me a very long time to decide that I had value just because I existed. And because I was created by a wonderful God who thought that for some reason I could bring value to this planet and share a message that needed to be shared. And that took, I mean, way long. Or you doubted that? You doubted the fact that you had value and therefore you had to be perfect in order to bring value? I mean, value? I don't know if at 16 I would have been able to articulate it like that. But I think at that point, I thought that all of my value came from external things, right? The clothes, the car, mm. you know, the quintessential family, you know, how I showed up for other people. I had a lot of anxiety around being a good friend, you know, being a good sister, and I felt like I never could meet the benchmarks that other people had set for me, even though I'm not sure if you would ask me if anybody had set benchmarks for me, what those would be, which is why talking about it now kind of makes me simultaneously feel a little bit crazy, but also simultaneously relieved to know that at one point it was so real to me. And now it's just a distant memory. But, you know, I'm the oldest of three. I have two very bright, wonderful, very different sisters. You know, people joke, they're like, you don't look alike, you don't sound alike, you don't, you, your mannerisms are completely different. And yet, if you spend enough time with all three of us, there's probably very similar undertones for us, but we just share them in different ways. And, you know, it was always that I'm always Sarah's little sister or, oh, you're Sarah's little sister. I was never like, oh, you're, you're your sister's older sister. You know, I was always the reference point. And it was really difficult because somehow my obsessive nature with people perceiving me as perfect somehow trickled to my siblings as well, right? Where we're just never going to compare. Mom and dad think that you have all these great things going and we don't. And we don't really talk about it now. Like we're great. We're close. You know, I support them in, in whatever way I can. But at that point in my head, it was like a double negative, right? Where I'm trying to be perfect, but at the same time, I'm also being viewed as someone who's undermining and making other people look bad. And that's never, ever, no matter what, whether I was 10, 20, or in my 30s now, that was never, ever my intention because I think people deserve to glow and shine and be who they are because I respected them. I've always respected that people are different. And yet somehow my skewed version of what reality was has made other people feel less than. Hmm. It's almost like, like you said, there's two different sides of this and you're feeling conflicted and it's almost like you had to set the benchmark, but at setting the benchmark, it was a level of something that you couldn't attain, let alone another individual feeling like they would never attain to that. Absolutely. And it started to, I mean, it started to affect my health. I mean, I'm getting up in the middle of the night. 
I'm studying mm. endlessly for test. Is this at 16? Oh, yeah. I remember, I can very vividly remember even sitting here, we had those big oversized corner desks. We each, each got one of them. I wouldn't call them overly aesthetically pleasing, but they did the job. And I remember I would be up till all hours of the night, my freshman year, studying for a world history exam. Because, you know, everyone had told me he's so tough. I was so intimidated by him. I had to prove that I had all these things and I would be up in the middle of the night just to shuffle through papers. I may not be learning anything. I may not be reviewing things. But just to say, if someone asked me, I struggled. I struggled to make sure that I could show up in the most perfect way. And really, nobody was coming to give me a gold star for suffering. And I also took that upon myself, right? If I could have aced the test without any sort of studying and gotten a good night's sleep, at that point, that wasn't enough. I needed to prove that there was some sort of anguish, suffering, inequality in the situation in order for me to feel justified that it was enough. Was there ever a point in time, and I know we'll go into some of the transition aspect, but at 16, 17, in that age group, was there ever a point in time when you were able to to just relax and say, okay, enough is enough? Or was it always the I need to do more. I need to pursue more. I need to be better. I need to be more perfect. Uh, I would say I probably carried that through probably starting my doctorate. I was able to loosen up because I made a really good group of friends and we couldn't have been more different if we had tried. And so they weren't friends with <laughs> me because of the things that I thought I offered people. They were friends with me because they thought I was funny or because I was nice to them or because we went and did fun things together. So it was one of the first times in life that I was able to self-direct who I hung around with. And mm. the things that I was being acknowledged for, I probably never acknowledged myself. Like nobody ever thought that I was funny. Nobody ever thought, you know, or verbally said it to me, right? All those big characteristics yeah. that other people observe about you. Like it, we just didn't talk about it because I was so obsessed with doing, being, seeing that nobody ever could fill in anywhere else because there were no gaps. Wow. So. I mean, going through this, like you said, it was affecting your health. It was probably affecting uh, your your mental health as well as your physical health of obviously staying up. What was the transition? Like, was it the start of the group of friends? Was there another uh, time when all of a sudden you realized that, hey, I can be enough? Or what? What? Take us through some of those things where you now are shifting away from that. So from the outside into my twenties, I mean, I got my doctorate, I got my master's. We started to practice January of two thousand eleven. And February of that same year, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. I remember sitting at a, our kitchen table and mom had just said, you know, something feels a little bit off, but I went to the doctor. They said, everything's great. I remember where I was sitting. I remember what table it was. I remember how bright the lights were. And so I didn't think anything of it. And within six months, seven months, actually, she was gone. And for the first time in life, mm. I have a brand new practice where I signed up with my brother-in-law that, you know, there's not going to be anything that's going to come between us and loving and serving patients. Like neither one of us thought that we would have to put some sort of clause in there unless one of us had to sidetrack to go help my mom get to her appointments or come home because she fell or come home because she was too weak to get out of a chair. So all of a sudden, it wasn't about me at all. All of a sudden, it was about how do we take the situation that we currently have, even aside from the sadness, the uncertainty, everything else, how do we take the situation that we have and start problem solving in a way that we can win in the situation right now? And so at that point, it really made me start to realize this is not about being perfect. This is about being present. And this is about problem solving and adapting in real time. And I really had never had to do that before. And 
I, that probably sounds so cliche. I used to be so embarrassed to admit it, but you got to remember at this same time, a majority of my friends were getting married. They had gotten engaged. They, they're buying houses. They're thinking about having children. And so cognitively, this was the first time in life now where all of a sudden I'm also now completely second guessing and questioning everything I learned and knew about because I was supposed to be the one getting engaged too and getting married and buying the house and doing all the things. And it was the first time in life that I was like, when did I start believing that? Why did I make that a truth in my own life? Why did, why did I make myself wrong because that wasn't happening? And so at that point, I mean, the rug was completely pulled out from underneath me. And, you know, from a doctor perspective, you know, trying to help someone else, let alone a parent walk through the journey of being sick, both emotionally and physically, you know, I also had to realize I had to up level how I supported them. My mom just really wanted me to be a daughter. She wanted me to show up and, you know, just be with her. She didn't want someone to see her as sick. She just wanted someone who could have lunch with her and have nonsensical conversations or do, you know, randomly take a walk if she was feeling up to it. She didn't need me to step into a role that I felt inclined to step into. And, you know, I look back on it. I didn't really, I was very calm, cool and collected with her most of the time that she was sick. And the last time that I saw her, which I didn't anticipate would be the last time, was the first time that I actually like full-fledged, kind of just lost it. And I had prided myself on being this dutiful daughter who who couldn't show emotion to the one person that I thought really just needed someone to be the glue. And I was really proud of that. You know, I had held it together. And there was a couple of years after where I really just kind of, I don't know, was hard in myself about... You know, I should have really kept it together that last visit. And I can't believe that I showed her how scared I was and how sad I was and how overly emotional I was. I've really kind of honored in the last couple of years, especially just the grace. You know, it was a moment for both of us and we were able to share it together and it was real. And that's really from that point on, it caused me to reframe everything, like literally drop everything that I've ever thought and stop and say, okay, bit by bit. Is this really what I believe? Why do I really believe it? How do I want to live my life? What kind of partner do I want to share a life with? What kind of kids do I want to raise? How do I want to show up for this world? And to take everything that you've metaphorically always believed in that has guided every principle in your life and to now feel like you're literally starting over as a full-fledged adult, it was really scary. And it, and it took me a minute. And it still sometimes takes me a minute. But it's very freeing to not feel like you have to live under the constraints of things that you don't want to live under. You said so many things in there. And I'm going to take you back just a little bit and ask a couple of questions. And one of the things that you asked yourself is, when did I start believing that? So you, you were questioning the beliefs of being able to, I should be married by now. I should have kids by now. I should have a house by now. I should be whatever that fill in the blank is by now. And you ask yourself, when did I start? What made you wake up and say, when did I start believing that? Because that's not something that everybody does naturally. We don't just wake up and say, when did I start believing that? We kind of just keep going through life. What woke you up on that part? I think when my health started to be affected and when like something that hadn't come into my lexicon of what could happen in my late 20s, my mom getting sick, my mom passing away, as soon as something that I hadn't planned on logically in a sequential order as it should be, where I could find other examples that that made sense to me, right? Like I had seen a girlfriend of mine get married in her late 20s, right? So I had all of these examples of why my logic on how things should go would play out. I felt like, oh, cool, this must be the right way to think. 
And so now instead of being an individual who has her own calling in her own life with, you know, potentially different path than someone else, I wanted to be just like everybody else. Because you got to figure it's a very lonely place aside from your own family when you lose a family member, especially a parent that young, right? Like I had so many people who wanted to field in, who wanted to talk to me, who wanted to provide support. A lot of people didn't know how. Right. And it was hard. You, you didn't want to make them wrong, but you, I wasn't in a place where I could provide support to them or try and explain it to them. Right. So it really forced me. I mean, you know, my sisters and I were all grieving in different ways. My dad was grieving in a different way. And, uh, it was the first time where I'm like, we need to grieve in our own ways as well, because I started to find myself probably unconsciously making other people the way they grieve wrong. And it came out. I didn't really believe that because I, I didn't want to make anybody else wrong, but unconsciously somehow I had decided that there was one way to do that too, right? There's this unilateral, everybody should do this one way. And it just opened the portal, the vortex wide open where I'm like, we all experience things with different perspectives, with different lenses, with different histories. So between doing my own brain work and figuring out how I operate and what, how I wanted to leave this planet, it also gave me an opportunity to say, how do I help other people do that in a great way possible as well? So let me ask you another part of this question. I, I love the explanation that you just gave because that's so true in many, many ways. But the other thing that you mentioned is that you actually felt bad for displaying the emotion and having that time with your mom. I, I want to be sensitive in this aspect as well because I know we all go through healing in different processes and grieving, like you just said, in different processes. But why did you believe the aspect that you couldn't display the emotions that you were feeling and the grieving that you were feeling? Why did all of a sudden that one time it did come out and then you said, now I feel like I have to give myself grace? Was there a belief level, a narrative that you were following at that point in time? I think I had realized in my 20s too that I probably wasn't an overly grateful kid and teenager. You know, I felt pretty entitled at one point in life. I could tell you stories that would embarrass the pants off of me, just about areas in my life where I just felt like this was just how everybody's life went. Right. And so it was probably almost an embarrassment that it took me this long and this particular situation for me to realize that I've got someone in front of me who's suffering that I can't do anything about. And the gratitude that I probably should have expressed along the way. You know, if my mom were here today, she would not say any of this. My mom was such a graceful person that she would say, You were a wonderful daughter. I mean, the things she said to me the last time I saw to her. I still remember to this day because it was all so positive and so optimistic. And she talked about me in a way that I've never had anybody else talk about me that way. And yet I was so embarrassed that I didn't show her the level of gratitude that I thought that she was owed at that moment in time. And that I probably was going to miss the opportunity to really do that. You know, it was like, it was a sadness that there was never going to be a next day, next step, next year, that it really was like, I, I can't possibly fit into this time just everything that has happened. And I felt a little bit guilty that somehow I hadn't woven that into life more. I had taken for granted the idea that we would have more time. Yeah. And let's transition into how you're living your life now. And you said there's grace involved. And I think that's such a healthy attitude to have even in dealing with our own lives. But what are the practices? What are the belief systems? What? How are you crafting and writing your narrative now as compared to what it was before? What are the things that you've changed? So I started asking for a lot more help people that I trusted, some people that I paid, some people that just met me for breakfast and we just had a really casual conversation. I just really started seeking out people that maybe on a path that I'd like to join or a path, you know, like 
not even outside, you know, they're driving a Maserati. I want to drive a Maserati, just more of like an intrinsic value. How do you know, like, I love the way they show up in the world. I need to pause you on this because I think this is a huge, huge component of many people in their lives. And the question always comes up because you just said I started reaching out. How did you get yourself to the point of even being able or willing to allow yourself to reach out and ask for help? Because so often in our, in many, many people's lives, we're not even willing to reach out and ask for help. So how did you get to that stage of saying, okay, I am willing to reach out and, and ask for help? Because I had done enough work at that point to know that I, I decided I had value and people who have value deserve to live a life that they want to live. And I want to bring value to other people. And I also knew that there were other people in situations where they were suffering and struggling and I owed it to them to show them that you can do hard things when you're suffering and you can do, do hard things when you're scared and you can do hard things when you don't know the outcome and you can do hard things when you don't want to. You know, there's some day, there's some days where I was like, I don't want to get out of bed. Right. And for some people, it's just not that easy. And I, you know, that's why sometimes I caution people when I present or when I do other things like you see me now as this put together, vivacious, sometimes funny person who can make fun of themselves and, you know, tell you that you have value. But I still have my hard days and I still need to remind myself on some days how to, you know, reframe. But asking for help for me was the best thing I could have done because it put me in a position where I had to humble myself and say, clearly there are things that I don't know. I want a different way forward. And the only way forward is to do something different. That's a complete turnaround from the fact of being perfect and showing up and saying, I can never, you know, looking for that value on the outside and then being able to be vulnerable and authentic and say, look, I, I need help. That's a an exact opposite turn. I mean, you're going right back on that. So what are the things that you do now to be able to enforce and, and continue to grow personally and see that value and, and become more confident in that value of who you are internally? So just recently, I when I spoke, I actually acknowledged, I want you to leave this presentation with the feeling that there's a different way. And I said, I may get through my presentation. I may not get through my presentation. And I really just kind of framed it in a way that like, I just wanted to make a connection with them because historically I would have been like, shoot, I've got 35 slides. I got to get through them. And I have to say this in this way, and you can't do this in this way. And I just have really taken the opportunity to just be myself because People will want to be around me because they resonate with the idea that I just am aligned with who I am and I'm willing to make mistakes and I'm willing to apologize. One of the absolute biggest game changers for me, other than deciding that I wanted to do things different, was being willing to apologize when I make mistakes and started to learn what being respectful and disrespectful was. Mm. It took me a very long time to recognize that in many areas of my life, business, personal, professional unknowingly, I was being disrespectful. I was somehow putting a guard up for someone else because I was making them wrong because I had to be right or because we disagreed on something. Somehow they had to be wrong and I had to be right or they had to be right and I had to be wrong. And one of the best things- Can you, can you give us an example of something like that just to, to really drive it home? I was having a conversation with a colleague one time and you know I had done a whole bunch of work and- this this conversation probably historically would have very much triggered me, right? They said they were mad at me for something, that they couldn't believe this happened. And historically, old Sarah would have been like, oh, wow, oh, you know, and like, because I felt like I had to like give a rebuttal, like make them wrong for the way they felt. 
And instead, in a very poised way, I sat there, I stayed very grounded, I heard them, I listened to them. And I also recognized that probably what they had going on probably had nothing to do with me. But the outcome of the conversation was a thousand times different and more positive and more communal than the other way that I had approached it. And the same thing goes with personal relationships. You know, one of the other things in my own personal life is I'm so thankful that I didn't meet my partner for life until now, because who I was then and who I am now, I I would have created a completely different life. And I probably would have attracted a completely different partner. But we talk all the time about like, when you have two people, he he does his own work, he does his own coaching, he does his own self-reflection and has his own past stuff that he still tries to navigate. We still have our stuff then. Like, how is it possible that two people who have done their own work still have stuff that we have to work through. And it really was a big labor of love after the pandemic, after working through all the, you know, crisis managing, how to navigate with two people who recognize that we are 100% completely imperfect and that what we say and what we mean aren't necessarily heard in the same way. You know, like sometimes he will say to me, you know, you're just really judgmental right now. And I'm thinking in my head, like, that is like the least judgmental thing I can say right now. <laughs> or I'll say something and he'll be like, that was really rude or, or role reversal. He'll say something to me and I'll be like, well, that was a little abrupt. And like the language, we speak two completely different languages. And it wasn't until I started now broadening beyond myself. How do I understand other people and other genders and other cultures in a way that doesn't make them wrong? doesn't make me right, just makes us different. <laughs> and you just spoke what every couple, every person ever goes through and the learning the fact that we're still not perfect. And we're just, I, I mean, frankly, I, I say this to my wife, we we come down to it and it says we're two imperfect people that are not willing to give up on each other. And that's what it comes down to because we have those things. I, I just, everything that you said just resonated with me on so many levels there. Um, that was pretty funny, actually. It was really good. <laughs> Well, and it's also really humbling. Yeah. Like you, until I got into a long-term relationship in a very challenging, stressful part of life after I had done a lot of my own work. Right. It, it, he was a mirror for me. No longer could I sit in my room and say, well, I've done all the work and I just am yeah. so evolved and I've just figured things out. And, you know, and now I've got someone in front of me who's like, I love you. And I just wanted to let you know that like what you just said to me was really hurtful. Well, I mean, that can't possibly be right because I've done all the work and I whatever. And it took me a hot minute and I would say a hot couple hours, hot couple, whatever you want to call it. It took me a hot minute to recognize that, again, his opinion is valid. It has merit because I love him and he was vulnerable enough to share it with me. Yeah. So what does that mean? How do I respond? How can I take it and show up differently in myself? And what do I need to do in my own world to make sure that I honor that without making him wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Incredible stuff. It's not perfect. Yeah. So, I mean, we're getting time. We're getting close to the end here. And I'll ask the question and I'm actually going to give you the choice. It's it's the dealer's choice in this situation. Is there something that you want out of all the things that you said? Is there something that you would want somebody to remember? Or is there something on your heart that you're like, Tim, I just have to get this off. I'm, I'm feeling very compelled to be able to say this. I want to give you the floor to be able to kind of lay out like a mic drop moment or something that you feel is really important for our listeners to hear. I think I go back to value. Whether you work in an organization, whether you start your own business, whether you decide to have kids, whether you decide not to have kids, like the people that are meant to be in your life can only be there if you are who you want to be. 
So I just would really encourage people, if you feel like you're living a life that doesn't align with who you are, that's not wrong. Just make start making different choices. You don't have to overhaul your life. You don't have to sell your house. You don't have to divorce your significant other. But just respectfully, you know, I honor other people way more than I used to honor myself, you know, and just honoring that your intuition and your gut and how you feel is important. And if you stop listening to that, you start to numb yourself out. And I just would encourage people to start doing things that feel aligned for you and start noticing that people don't even care. They don't even care that you start to eat bananas and you used to love oranges or that you cut your hair short and you always prided yourself on having long hair. Like you will be surprised on how you feel so much better and nobody else is bothered by it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you said earlier. I feel like we almost need to bring that back in and say, when did I start believing whatever and fill in that blank? I mean, because that's exactly what you're talking about. When did I start believing that false narrative? versus what I'm actually crafting now. Uh, so if somebody was listening, they resonate with you, how can they get in touch with you? So I have a website, www.drsarahwedon.com. And if you want to email us, reach out, let me know how the podcast went for you. It's support at drsarahwedon.com. Awesome. Awesome. And we'll actually put that in the notes. So that way, if you're listening to this and you didn't catch that, you can go back, you can copy paste, you can find it that way. Again, I mean, there's so many cool things here and I love hearing these stories. Sarah, thank you for uh, showing up. Thank you for your authenticity, the genuineness that you shared from your heart. Man, I, I honestly can't thank you enough for it. It's such an honor to talk with you. I love what you're doing. Thank you so much. And can't wait to do more work together. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So those that are listening, one, if you haven't listened to the other stories, man, go back and listen to a couple of them. <laughs> you may find something that you really, really like. Two is if you're watching this on YouTube, make sure you subscribe. And then three, finally, and this is the most important aspect of it. If something we said, something that Sarah said, something that came across to you has impacted your life, we want to know about it. We want to know how and what you're changing. We want, and truly, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And I, every guest that I've had on, including Sarah, we want to hear back from you. We want to know if we've been able to help, encourage, support, and how can we do more of that? Uh, so until next time, keep listening to stories. And again, like I really strongly encourage everybody, continue to write your narrative and embrace that story. Thanks for listening to today's show. But before you go, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be the author of your story? Take the next step now at www.narrative.live and enter your details to connect with a community of others just like you that are tired of living under the false narrative. Finding your true story and writing your narrative, it will give you clarity, freedom of your day, and it just might change your life forever.